Welcome to another edition of the Law of Code podcast. Anything mentioned in this episode by Jacob Robinson or his guests is not legal advice or investment advice. All opinions are Jacob's and his guests alone. Nothing discussed today should be relied upon for legal or investment decisions. This show is solely for information and entertainment purposes only. Jacob and his guests are not your lawyers, nor are they investment advisors. Please work directly with a lawyer or investment professional. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Law of Code podcast. I'm really excited to share this conversation with you today. My guest is Ryan Miller. Uh, I'll link his LinkedIn in the show notes below. Ryan is the founder and managing partner of Miller Strategic Partners, LLP, a recently launched law firm that specializes in regulatory advice and investigations counsel for the traditional trading and markets industry, regulatory and strategic advice for digital assets and blockchain companies, and crisis and incident response management. Ryan launched his firm with partner William Schroeder, and Ryan was previously general counsel at FTX US, a partner at Sullivan and Cromwell, and legal counsel to chairman Gary Gensler while at the CFTC during the CFTC's Dodd-Frank rule writing program. We'll speak on all aspects of Ryan's career to date, as well as his new firm and recent CFTC actions. Ryan, welcome to the Law of Code podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. Jacob, thanks for having me. I've, I've been a fan watching you develop this for a long time now, so I'm thrilled to be able to be a guest. Thanks for the invitation. Oh, my pleasure and thrilled to have you on. I've, I've been wanting to speak with you for a while now and so glad we're able to put this together. And I think the timing is very nice in terms of a recent update on your end with the launch of your new firm. I would love to discuss and hear your thoughts on why you started Miller Strategic Partners, the type of clients you work with, and the gap in the market that you fill. Of course. Happy to get into that. And for everyone listening, don't worry. We're going to be very brief on the new law firm, and we'll get into a lot of fun stuff that we have to go over on industry events, history, and everything in between. But sure, I, I started to look over the summer at my next steps, and I had plenty of folks reaching out looking to work with me, whether it was on projects whether it was for discrete legal advice or it was just for general general thoughts on what they were putting together and what they were building. One of my favorite things to do has been to work with builders and entrepreneurs as they seek to bring a new product to market, particularly in the financial industry. I did this for years with hedge funds, with the banks, with asset managers for both uh, derivatives and securities businesses. And then as digital assets emerged, started to get a lot of exposure to projects there as well. Um, the FTX experience, again, disappointing outcome. That's another podcast, but had a great time during the hyper growth phase of our U.S. business. And I enjoyed pursuing the licenses and taking a shot at bringing the global derivatives market structure to the United States. Um, so looking forward, Miller Strategic Partners became a vehicle for me uh, to go out there and let folks know I'm back. I'm open for business. And it allows me to say, here's the types of things that I can offer and be useful to you on. The first of which you mentioned was just traditional trading and markets work, whether that's you know, trade conduct type regulatory analysis, day-to-day -day regulatory needs of registered financial institutions, um, and day-to-day -day corporate and in-house needs when looking at things like investigations or inquiries from self-regulatory organizations. So excited to offer that. I, I think in parallel, equally excited to do the digital asset and blockchain work, have had several projects reach out looking to partner and collaborate in different ways, 
usually around the advisory type programs and strategic strategic development of what they're putting out there. Um, and then the last bullet point you mentioned up front, crisis and response management, um, have some experiences there from the real world that I found folks eager to learn from. And I'm, I'm eager to help folks understand what I think the best way to react and move forward is in those situations and put the priorities in the right place when going through your decision tree. Thanks for the background, Ryan. And I know there are many aspects to running a firm, particularly in the crypto space. And for you, you've had some very impressive experiences and, and wide ranging experiences from in-house general counsel roles to a partner at a big white shoe law firm to counsel to chairman Gary Gensler. And we'll get into some stories on that. But I'd love to go way back to your first introduction to Bitcoin. What was your genesis block and your initial thoughts when you learned of this new technology? Thanks. It's a great question. So I, I was not into Bitcoin in 2008 when the white paper was released. This will not shock anyone. But many of my clients through 2013 is when I moved to New, New York to join Sullivan and Cromwell, 2014, 2015, were the prop trading firms. And you can think of you know the largest names of the prop trading firms out there. And a handful of them started on their trading desk to build in crypto trading. A lot of it was Bitcoin and Ether in the early days, and they started to expand out as the market grew. So late 2015, going into 2016, I had clients come in and say, look, our, our trading desk is doing X, Y, Z. Can you help us think through, is there a registration requirement? Are there conduct type issues to be aware of? Um, and, and, and from there, it grew into what became you know, a, a, a type of blockchain and digital assets practice at many large law firms that we see today. And so when, when you did begin to see the institutional interest, was there, what, what was your impression? Did you think this was something that would stick around? Did you think fast forward to 2023, you would still be working in this space? The, the first set of issues that you focused on were the same issues that we all still wrestle with today, which is where do we slot in from a categorical perspective, these products? And once we do that, what are the regulatory implications? And that there was as much clarity then as there is now on where we slot in many of these products. I'm not going to say all of them. I'm certainly Bitcoin, Ether, dot, dot, dot. And I think it's a longer list than most people will give credit to. Um, the CFTC has claimed and, and grabbed up as commodities and, and not something else. So from the early days, it was very clear that some sort of market conduct type regulation was going to be important. And in the United States, we have two market conduct regulators. We have the CFTC and we have the SEC. We're still working through, I think, as an industry and a country um, on, from a regulatory perspective where that lands. And we're still largely in the 50 state licensing program that we had as early as 2013, when you go back to when Coinbase really first opened up its doors and took the 50 state money transmitter licensing approach. So... The issues were similar. We've got a lot more data points and clarity. And as lawyers, that's what we do. We go out and grab the data points, which can be um, an enforcement report, such as the Dow report, or it can be um, settlements with bad actors. The early settlements, largely from CFTC and SEC, were pretty obvious bad actors, manipulation attempts, or just frauds. And that then evolves into speeches from regulators, evolves into more complex or more mature projects settling with the SEC particularly. And then it, it has evolved today into some active litigation. And we've seen, this, we've seen this evolution across financial markets 
for time memorial. And when, when the derivatives markets grew up in the 1980s, we didn't get a clear, this is how derivatives, and I'm not talking about futures, but over-the-counter swaps, this is how swaps are regulated for 10, 15 years. And then Congress went one way with it and went a completely different way with it 10 years later. So I think with crypto, the fact that, and, and particularly the traded market side of it, the fact that it's taking time was foreseeable. Um, and the fact that it's taking time is not unusual. And seven to 15 years is a long time frame, considering how long regulators have been grappling with problems in the crypto space. Do you see it taking around that long for us to have rules put in place that withstand the test of time and aren't continuously being tweaked? Or do you see it happening much quicker, given how large this segment has grown so quickly? It's a good question. My numbers here are going to be rough estimates, but I think the SEC has two to 3,000 employees, probably more than half of which are attorneys, maybe more than two-thirds. The CFTC is 1,000 maybe employees, again, more than half of which are attorneys. All those numbers are going to go up in the coming years, and they're not going to go up because we solved this all and answered all the questions correctly or with, with absolute clarity. I think we're going to get incremental clarity in different aspects of the market. It's going to start in the centralized version of these markets. And by centralized, I mean someone holding their hand up saying, I am the intermediary, regulate me. That Those types of entities have, have engaged in the policy discussions, in the legislative discussions, and are starting to trend towards some sort of outcome. I, I think in parallel, you've got a, a lot of brilliant people where you have, thinking about the side of the crypto industry, sometimes called decentralized finance or the decentralized space, who aren't holding up their hands and saying, we're the intermediaries. They're holding up their hands and saying, this is a paradigm shift. It's a new model. Um, it, decentralization is, is a concept that has merit. And, and we should think about how to regulate that rather than pushing it back into a centralized actor intermediate structure. And so some of the, the best minds out there are spending their days on this. So I think that regulatory discussion, particularly moving beyond the centralized intermediary world and into the more decentralized concept, conceptual world is going to be a longer discussion. Um, and, you know, seven to 15 years is going to upset you know, a handful of folks, but that's not a crazy estimate. Thanks for the, the background there, especially with regards to derivatives and also your, your perspective. It's interesting to see, too, in Canada, we've been a bit quicker, I think, after Quadriga collapsed to regulate these centralized institutions, set up custody rules. There hasn't been much by way of enforcement actions against any decentralized players here. And I think that's where actions like what the CFTC took last week is, is differs the U.S. from most countries in the world. I want to put a pause on that. I mean, the, the comparison versus you know, rest of world or ROW is, is a very valid one. And you're seeing a lot of jurisdictions step in and say, okay, a markets regulator makes sense for a lot of what we're observing. Let's use some principles-based regulation and rules and require some sort of interaction with our markets regulator, whether it's through a, a VASP license, through the way Canada is doing it by, by make, adding clarity to the centralized exchanges and the custody process. All of that is helpful pressure. And again, global markets are competitive. We've seen this in traditional financial assets um, and in banking and in finance itself for, for decades. So the competitiveness of global markets is not going to go away. I do think there's going to be momentum from the U.S. to maintain its competitiveness. There's not a huge level of buy-in on that from the current leaders of the U.S. regulatory side that the competitiveness is challenged or an issue. 
I think that can evolve as, as administrations evolve. So we, we want to keep watching all these pieces. And let's talk about one of the heads of a regulatory agency. You were legal counsel to Gary Gensler. And, and when I came across that on LinkedIn, I thought, oh, that's very interesting. I can imagine Ryan has some stories there. I'd love to hear your thoughts on Chair Gensler, um, perhaps share any stories that, that you have about him or what you know of him as a person and whether you're surprised at what you've seen since he's taken the helm of the SEC. Yeah, that's, that's a great question, a very dangerous question. And so I, I, I think highly of anyone who's committed the amount of time to public service you know, to this country that, that he and many of his peers have. And we'll probably lose some of the listeners right there on that remark. But it's, it's notable the people that have mm-hmm. dedicated big parts of their career to trying, to trying to serve the public in the way that they think is true and fair and correct. Many of us have gone through that, um, particularly in this bar. The, the, the trading and markets bar. I've spent time at the SEC and CFTC. So that's commendable. Um, I, I think with Chairman Gensler, you want to look at his history and sort of see some of the trends to, to maybe get a sense of, of what his perspective is. He's a very agenda and priority driven regulator from, from his earliest days at the CFTC. And that, that is very much not the earliest days of his public service. Um, he, he would tell the market and the industry what he was going to do and then he would begin to execute on it and, and take steps to finalize the rules he said he was going to finalize. Um, and, and he's not a stranger to conflict. He's not, he's not uncomfortable taking a position that's counter to what a lot of folks in industry might want him to come out with. Uh, the SEC you know, approach that he has taken is, is not counter to his personality. Let's put it that way. He was sued at the CFTC. He was sued by a major trading uh, association in connection with a huge Dodd-Frank rulemaking called position limits. Not relevant for today. We can do that another in another podcast. Uh, but he, he was sued. The CFTC lost. The rule was overturned by a federal judge, and the CFTC went back to the drawing board. So the idea that litigation could be part of his analysis and toolkit um, is not new. And I, I think that's that's some interesting perspective. I, I, I think the other point about Chairman Gensler, though, at least looking at my CFTC perspective, there was a willingness to um, be practical and meet the industry where the regulations either were going to have burdensome impacts in a way that didn't make sense for the policy objectives in play um, to, to, to figure something out. For example, you know, the team that I was on that worked with him, we spent most of our days talking to the industry and negotiating with the industry around no action letters and guidance letters. In, largely in connection with a bunch of Dodd-Frank rulemakings, but we issued, we, along with the staff, a, a, a huge team of dedicated staff, got through maybe 100 or 100 plus no action letters in a little over a year. It's pretty unprecedented, but it reflected this engagement, both with the chair's office and the staff and the chair and the staff and the industry to get things right. And, and the goal there was to ensure that the broader goal, the rulemaking effort, um, was not was not subsumed by the inability of industry to get up to speed quickly enough. So that, that I think, is not the Chairman Gensler approach that we've seen at the SEC. Um, we've, we've not seen a bunch of no-action letters, maybe a handful from the SEC, but what, there absolutely has not been you know, a, a staff team and a chair team grinding it out you know, in closed-door sessions like the CFTC staff used to do with industry to get to a proposed solution and then put that out as either an interim relief, no action letter, or guidance letter. I suspect there are reasons for that approach that, that might be political or they might be tied to the structure of the SEC. 
but it's it's not an approach that we've seen work around getting crypto into a more certain space from a regulatory perspective. So with Chairman Gensler, I think it's worth spending just a couple minutes on his background before public service. I don't know how much the crypto industry, uh, particularly a lot of the folks newer to markets have followed him. So is it okay if we go through that for a couple minutes? That would be fantastic, Ryan. Thank you. So it's it's this amazing bag. We're talking about Gary Gensler, chair, the current chair of the SEC. Before that, he was chairman of the CFTC. Uh, he, he grew up in Baltimore, working class family. He's, he's very proud of his family. He talks often about them. And then he goes to Wharton Business School at Penn. Great student by all accounts. And ends up at Goldman Sachs. He, he starts his career at Goldman Sachs. He ultimately spends 18 years there. And at age 30, so early in his career, he became a partner and at that time, becoming partner at Goldman Sachs was a major achievement. It's, it still is very much a major achievement. It was a major achievement then. He's one of the youngest people ever to become partner at you know, Wall Street's most famous investment banks, Goldman Sachs. One of his, his most well-known achievements that, that folks still talk about today was bringing the National Football League or the NFL, one of its first, first big TV deals. It's like a $3.6 billion deal for football rights, football television rights. So this is, this is Chairman Gary Gensler, the Goldman Sachs partner, the, the formidable investment banker. Um, he does this for 18 years. And then after 18 years, he leaves Goldman Sachs to take an opportunity in the late 90s to join the Clinton administration. And he ends up as Assistant Secretary of the U.S. Treasury. It's a big role. It's a Senate-confirmed seat. And this is someone still still relatively early in the career has left Wall Street to join the Clinton administration and get involved in financial services regulation. From there, and bear with me, this is all a bit, it's a bit of history, but I think it's interesting and worth knowing. Um, one of the major accomplishments of the teams that Gensler was working with during that time was the Commodity Futures Modernization Act of the year 2000, sometimes called the CFMA. And this was an act of Congress that largely exempted the over-the-counter derivatives markets, that's the swaps markets, from regulation. It was, it was a fairly wholesale exemption from regulation for the institutional derivatives and swaps markets. And Gensler was a driving force in getting the CFMA written, getting it passed, and it was a meaningful achievement for, for what the administration was doing in those years. Um, he did a little work after that in connection with Sarbanes-Oxley, in fact, he did a lot of work helping get that written and doing some bringing reforms to public accounting. But then fast forward seven or eight years, 2008, the global financial crisis occurs, much of which was blamed on unregulated and unsupervised over-the-counter swaps. And the question sort of comes out, why were all these banks, um, which had increasingly leveraged swaps books, doing so in an un unsupervised and unregulated way? And well, of course, because of the CFMA, this act of 2000. And so it's, it's this interesting history that, that, that Chairman Gensler was very much involved in. And that sort of leads us into his joining the CFTC and being tasked with then in 2010, unwriting all of the CFMA and putting into place a pretty comprehensive swaps regulatory program, uh, which became the Dodd-Frank rulemaking program. That's such important background. Thanks, Ryan, because you can see if you're working so hard to create a deregulation or deregulated space and, and remove rules and that ends up blowing up in your face, any potential opportunity you have going forward, you bear that in mind. And that becomes a big factor in his decision making, undoubtedly. Um, so th I think that's really important background to, to hear. And so when he was he was at the CFTC and you, you worked closely with him, 
What did that teach you about regulatory agencies and how does that shape how you interacted with them at your time at Sullivan and Cromwell, FTX US and your time now going forward with your firm? Sure. So the, the regulatory process in the US and let's let's just stay CFTC, SEC um, is consensus driven to get to get orders, decisions, rules, proposals. You need three out of five votes. It's very much um, a, a heavy lift to get commission level decision making out the door. It, it can be very political. It's not always, but it can be very political. And it, and it often requires the commissioners at least to be looking and very much paying attention to what is happening on Capitol Hill as well as legislature legislators through proposed bills and their different committee work are signaling to the agencies their priorities and their preferences. And normally if you're sitting in a commissioner or a chairman seat, you've gotten there through some collaboration or partnership with the legislators that are following these issues. And so you, you want to not only do your job for your own career and brand, but you don't want to offend or upset those legislatures, legislators that have helped you get to where you are thus far. So, so I, I think looking at the regulatory process, it's consensus driven and you need a chairman that's going to get in there and bring the commissioners, in, at least three of them, into alignment, which is a heavy lift. A little bit in contrast, the chairman, it, him or herself, holds a lot of power in that there's a lot you can do outside of the rulemaking or formal commission order process. And I'm talking about speeches, statements, guidance letters, no action letters, and to some extent enforcement. That really runs through the chair's decision on deciding what gets to go forward. Enforcement's normally a commission decision, but the chair gets to control which decisions get put in front of the commission for decision making. And so if you're on the outside as counsel or advisor or regulatory strategy advisor to a firm looking to engage with these regulators, you need to understand what sort of goal you're going after. If you need a rulemaking, a proposed rule, a change in rule or some commission order, you need to get the chairman to decide to prioritize the issue and put it on the docket. And then you need to get at least two other commissioners, hopefully more, to get on board with it. And at the same time, you need to consider, is there a chairman direct type of action that solves our goals, either on the intermediate basis or long term? And should you also be advocating for that in parallel? Uh, I, and so, I mean, that, that's not news to most of your listeners, but as a practicing lawyer, it just means you, you really focus not just on the agency's substantive expertise, but the makeup and composition of the individuals who are in the leadership roles, their histories, um, who, who they've aligned themselves with in terms of their own career placement and career, career potential advancements. And all of those factors come into trying to figure out which advocacy approach is going to make the most sense. Um, a, a last point here, and I, I think this reflects itself pretty pretty directly with Chairman Gensler and crypto is that regulators are not risk takers. And, I, and I'm sure you can get commissioners or you know, division directors to come on your podcast and maybe counter me on that or come at it a different way. But th there's not a regulator sort of in the history of the American experiment that's been brought to Congress and told, congratulations, you did a great job. Here's a medal for being the best director or the best chairman of agency XYZ. That, that's not how the congressional and agency oversight process works. As everyone listening knows, it's the opposite that happens. There's a blow up. There's, there's some unexpected event. Could be cybersecurity event. Could be a financial event. Could be a bankruptcy. And the regulators who are in the seat get brought to Congress and they get asked, you know, why did this happen? Why didn't you prevent this from happening? Why are you so poor at your job? Why don't you do anything correctly? 
And and there's just never an event on the other side where they get a medal or a prize for having done things correctly. So you, you don't have regulators incentivized to go out there and say, yes, I want to see innovation happen. I want to see it go forward. I understand there's risk and we're going to manage them, but we acknowledge the risk. They're, they're much more incentivized to say, let's identify and stop the risk from occurring. And if innovation doesn't move quite as quickly as, as it might otherwise would, well, we'll, we'll figure that out on the back end. And we, we're start, we, we very much have seen that, that take place in the U.S. Um, I, I think for the crypto lobby and the crypto advocacy groups in the United States today, um, this is not an underappreciated point, but it's one that we're starting to be better served, which is what's the motivation for a regulator to get involved here? Polygon has put out the value prop. I think that's a really great exercise in saying, look, under this, under this program, the value prop, we identify the different cryptocurrency and blockchain projects that are creating use cases that are valuable to constituency XYZ for purposes XYZ. It, it's a great initiative, and I hope we see both an expansion of it and, and more initiatives like that. On, on that point, Ryan, I'd love to hear if there's any uh, items that weren't listed on the value prop or things that haven't been built yet in the crypto space that you expect or hope that we'll see in the future. Wondering if there's anything with regards to maybe corporate governance or uh, backend swaps. Is, is there anything that comes to mind to you as but something we haven't seen that blockchain could enable that hasn't been either built or discussed much? Sure. I'm, I'm, I'm sure I won't describe anything that someone can't come along and say, hey, what about Project XYZ? So my, my ignorance um, should be acknowledged up front rather than, um, rather than challenged later. But I, I, I think blockchain as a transparency portal, and we'll, we'll have to figure out who needs transparency and for what purpose, but is, is somewhere that we're going to see more effort and focus. If I can go to someone tasked with overseeing a, a, you know, a, a part of the market, the more transparency I can give them and the more accurate that transparency is and usable, the better. And blockchain is a transparency tool. It, it's designed from transparency first principles um, from, from a lot of different perspectives. And so I, I think that around you know, collecting transactions, you know, IDs of transaction participants, even in a qualitative way, if not identifying names, identifying users by ID, um, transactions by groupings, you're going to find that more transparency gets regulators on board with understanding what's happening and being able to say they've done their job. So some sort of blockchain as transparency portal would be great. So we, we were talking about ideas for blockchain use cases that, that might might facilitate this idea of regulator buy-in. I, I think another one along the lines of transparency portals would be a form of AML policy goals being solved with on-chain tools. And I've, I, I almost started by saying on-chain KYC or on-chain KYT, know your transaction. I think it's more complicated than that, but the, the, the high-level points of wallet risk scoring, transaction risk scoring, uh, groups of transaction risk scoring, there's a lot of valid science in saying that produces better outcomes than the tools we have today for KYC. If you look at what solves our policy concerns, then the more mechanical or binary types of KYC that's 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 done by much of finance now. So I'd, I'd like to see some real, I don't know if experiments is the right word, but I'd like to see some real launches of 
blockchain AML policy refinements, uh, blockchain tools to solve for AML policy issues. I think that's an area where you could see a lot of a lot of beginning of buy-in as well. Yeah, it's ironic how one of the best use cases could be something that is in line with regulation and isn't necessarily opposed to regulation, but can rem- can sort of marry the two decentralized finance permissionless uh, applications with an overarching scheme that was created and developed for a reason over time and isn't going to go away just with the invent of new technology. Certainly. One thing I always wondered is why there's such strong pushback around things like WorldCoin, where people scan their eyeball to get the token and that access sort of a KYC, whereas we're perfectly happy to open our Apple iPhones with Face ID all the time. And I understand, you know, Sam Altman, WorldCoin, there's different levels compared to where Apple is at today in terms of what we know about the business and, and the individuals running it. But what do you think about that whole situation? I, so where you have consumers and their privacy involved, obviously there's a ton of jurisdictions globally that are hyper-focused on protecting consumers' privacy, protecting that data. And the ability to trust a project or organization to get it right is something so far that you've got to earn through experience and doing and putting a ton of resources behind it to say, if we screw it up, we've got the resources to solve the screw up that we've done. And in parallel, I, I, I think all of our willingness to give all, give all of our data to the iPhone and, and the different apps that we use probably happened in somewhat of an evolved way that we didn't realize we were doing it. And so, you know, when we first signed up for social media site XYZ, at least on a generational basis, there wasn't this open acknowledgement that we were giving away our privacy in exchange for nothing, essentially. And so I think now we're much more attuned to it. And where someone says, give me access to your identity, and we're going to use that to help you access goods and services or stuff. We don't know the implications or we know the implications of if it goes poorly, and particularly in the U.S., this, this whole idea of freedom and being restricted in what you're able to buy or use, tying it back to freedom of speech and expression, it causes people to get very nervous. And so I think privacy is, is, the, is a big blocker to those sort of projects. Um, it, it can be solved. And I look forward to the smart people explaining to all of us why the privacy issues are solved and are done better in this particular way. But I, again, we talked earlier about how long is regulation going to take to get to clarity on this just around categorizing tokens as security, commodity, banking products, something else. There's going to be a lot of time. There's going to be lawsuits and litigation around privacy and identity protocols and identity tools. And all along the way, some people are going to build some really neat, useful products. That's a fantastic answer. All right, let's switch gears slightly and a little less positive in terms of what we've seen with three DeFi settlements from the CFTC, two with DeFi perps protocols in Open and DRIDX, and one with a decentralized exchange in 0x. And so in 2020, just to go back a few years, the CFTC had issued guidance on the application of the retail leveraged commodity transaction rule to digital assets. But this was the first time I'm aware of that the agency brought an enforcement action based on that rule. Could that be a harbinger of more things, of more enforcement actions based on this rule to come? It's a good question. This, 
there's so many places to dive in here. The CFTC has, this is not the first time it's looked at a decentralized type protocol. I, I think Polymarket is, is an interesting historical example where, you know, the, the CFTC hits it as, I can't remember if they said FCM there or exchange or both, but they looked at a platform where there was the ability to go and trade products that looked like to the CFTC derivatives and the entity itself was not registered in any way with the CFTC. The guidance you referenced, the Retail Leverage Commodity Transaction Guidance, was not at all generated for digital assets, as you know. The rule and the statutory background was not. In 2020, they, they added some guidance to apply it to digital assets. But the history is worth knowing. For decades in commodities markets, the largest fraud, the biggest global fraud is a scam. Someone calls to offer you gold or silver or some other valuable thing. And they're going to they're going to tell you they're going to keep it safe in a vault. Don't worry about where it is. And by the way, if, if I sell you some, you don't need to pay me until you sell it at the end and you just keep your profits and I'll keep the purchase price. And e even better, um, you know, if you want one ounce, why don't you buy two ounces? You don't have to pay until the end. And so they, they layer in this leveraged exposure to some commodity price. And, and what happened repeatedly over the history of time, the CFTC is very aware of this, is they were bucket shops. The gold or silver was never actually there. You know, if, if the price went against you, they would chase you for the money for, until you paid them. And if the price went the other way and you wanted to show up to collect your profits, the, you know, the, phone, the phone number stopped working, the email stopped working, the person disappeared, and they walked, they walked off um, in any event. So th these bucket shops have, have been a major source of fraud for many, many decades. And in the internet age, they've just expanded. And the retail leverage commodity rules were really designed to go after that. And, 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 but there is a very interesting um, real market, real, real commercial need for commodity transactions that involve financing, particularly in the U.S. agricultural markets. If, if I've got a corn crop, I'm oftentimes borrowing from my bank so I can finance my corn crop. And there's some leverage and financing components there. So have I done an illegal derivatives or am I just a farmer doing what farmers have done for hundreds and hundreds of years or thousands of years, um, getting some financing against the work that I'm doing? So Congress is very careful not to say that you know traditional commodity financing is illegal and prohibited, while at the same time saying that layering on financing or leverage to retail commodity transactions is illegal. And the way the way they've structured the rule is there's two exemptions from the illegality. If you're offering finance or leverage in connection with a retail commodity transaction, it's not subject to the CFTC's rules. So these are the exceptions or exemptions. One, if it's actually delivered within 28 days, and that's what the guidance was covering. We'll talk about that in a second. The other exemption, and I think this is more fascinating, and we haven't spent enough time here as an industry, is you can offer such transaction if you essentially treat it as a futures transaction. So run it through an FCM, trade it on a CFTC registered exchange. So the transactions aren't prohibited. They just have to be traded as a futures transaction. And that's where you see the basis for the CFTC charges in these different settlements and complaints. But um, back to the 28 days, this is where the CFTC was going to provide additional guidance to the crypto industry in 2020. What does actual delivery mean in the context of buying you know, a digital asset or digital goods such as Bitcoin, Bitcoin or Ether? And I, I think the guidance is interesting. You f folks who, who want to learn more about it should go read it. It's not a long document, but it but it it lays out a few principles along the lines of the the product has to act, has to actually deliver to the user. It can't be held in some suspended account where the user never actually gets it. And so 
when you look at something like perps or perpetual swaps, the actual delivery, there's sort of without ambiguity, it does not seem to be happening of the underlying commodity. Someone takes a leveraged position, whether it's on Bitcoin or Ether, um, and that, that could be in a contract or it can be, we now know the CFTC's view on a token designed to generate a return based on some benchmark, which is the underlying price of that commodity. But if, if the commodity itself is not delivered in the 28 days to the buyer, then you haven't met the exemption terms and you've got uh, an off-exchange leveraged retail commodity transaction. And remember, the only exemption at that point is if the product is treated as a futures contract, meaning it has to be traded on a CFTC-registered futures exchange. Thank you. Thank you for that, Ryan. And so I think it's you know, really important to keep those rules in mind. And the 28 days delivery is really interesting when it particularly when it comes to crypto and how it's regulated across the world. When say you were to, in this case, then I guess where you have the token, it's a BTC leveraged token for a future for an option. And essentially, if they were to deliver the actual Bitcoin within the 28 days, then it would be fine. Well, and it gets, it obviously gets a little more complicated, but I think, yes, where, where you've got, this is the CFTC's rules, where, where you've got leveraged or financing offered in connection with the sale, um, if the actual delivery of the underlying commodity happens within 28 days, you're in this exempt space. The products that were covered, at least in some of the recent CFTC orders, are much more interesting than this, though. There's, there's, you've got a group of developers that release some sort of code or protocol that allows you to buy and that, that allows other folks to drop in their tokens um, and then they can be transacted using that protocol. One type of token that was put into these protocols was a token that paid the return on the price of some digital asset. Could be Bitcoin, could be Ether. I suspect there were probably others. And the, the seller of the token would deposit some collateral to ensure they could pay out if they were on the wrong side of the trade. And the buyer of the token would pay the price for it up front and their ability to recognize upside would either come at settlement at the end or they could sell the token in the meantime. And so we've got the CFTC looking at that structure and saying, this looks like derivatives transactions. It looks like futures. One person's putting up margin. The other person is buying what sort of looks like an option. And you've got a platform here and platform I use with lowercase p facilitating the trading of this product. This starts to look like a platform where buyers and sellers are meeting to engage in what we think of as a derivatives transaction. We get that it's a token. I think the staff at the CFTC would say, we understand that it's a token, but our definition of swap, which is relevant for, for the products in this the settlement that I'm thinking of, it, it is broad. And if you've got any type of instrument, it doesn't have to be some magical CFTC words where it says swap contract at the top of it. If you have a token that's bringing the economic outcomes of what they view as a swap, they've signaled to the world they're going to look at that as a derivatives transaction, and they're going to look for the derivatives regulations to be complied with. I think we could spend some time wondering if it was appropriate to look at the developers on the protocol side as the, inter the person's raising their hand as intermediary to push out these products. Um, I suspect the developers would disagree with that characterization, notwithstanding the settlements. Um, and, and that's a discussion that we're going to have to keep going down. And it's, it's, the broader, it's the broader discussion of why technology deployed is not necessarily the same as holding my hand up and being an intermediary. We don't look at 
a good counter example is like a cloud provider, a cloud data provider, cloud server space provider. We don't look at them as the offerer of every service, activity, program, app that runs on that cloud or that runs on those servers. And is there going to be a parallel there for code deployers and code developers? There's a lot more thinking and work to do. Some of the brightest minds that we know of in this space are working on it. And I, I think it's one of the most interesting regulatory puzzles that's going to come together in the coming years. It, it really is. And I think the cloud computing is such a great example where it is being used in furtherance of certain transactions, certain actions taken by participants in the ecosystem. And it was a platform that's made available to them. It fits in sort of all these, the language that we've seen used by the SEC, by the CFTC. But at the same time, we're not seeing that same type of enforcement. We're not seeing the same type of standard being held to those actors. And do you think it's because of their lack of association with the crypto space, whereas it's a bit more obvious when it's a development company that is publishing the code in the first instance, or is there a fundamental distinction there? I think we have to be realistic that if I'm offering cloud space for you to come in and build whatever you want, you know, whether it's Netflix or, I don't know, Microsoft Office in the cloud, whatever services you want to deploy in my cloud space, that's a little bit different than writing code that's designed to facilitate you know, financial transactions. And I, people agree really strongly with me on that They'll say that I'm oversimplifying this, and I, I, I'm sure that I am. But we've got to understand that to the regulators, they don't get a prize again for being the, the supporters of innovation. They're going to get questioned when one of these protocols, when, when there's a rug, when the assets that have been put up as collateral disappear, which happens with some frequency. And they're going to get questions when something like manipulation or other trade conduct issues are seen. And we, we saw this with Mango Markets, the CFTC stepped in. So, and, and remember, they're charged by Congress with overseeing the derivatives markets that are made available to U.S. persons. If I'm at the CFTC, I don't see the recent settlements as egregious and, and wildly different from what they would have expected if you'd given them these fact patterns. But I, I also would want to continue to have these discussions with the, the folks doing the development and the protocol launches. And we need to push towards a better understanding of where that line is between holding up my hand as an intermediary, holding up my hand, offering products to users to trade or to take advantage of, and versus, on the other hand, simply providing technology for the world to use. And it's, it's going to be a long discussion. It will be. And it'll be interesting to see what jurisdictions are leading those discussions. And we've seen quite a bit of push, at least from projects outside the U.S. to exclude the U.S. by blocking the IP or users with U.S. IP addresses. But in the case of Open, one of the three uh, entities that the CFTC settled with, they were found to have not taken sufficient steps to actually block U.S. users from accessing the protocol. And Mark Boron of Polygon, now CEO, he noted that the test is actually whether the program for excluding U.S. people is reasonably designed and implemented. It doesn't need to be foolproof, and there is no bar that no individual can ever get around it to make it meet that certain test, because there has to be some realistic measure put onto these protocols and into onto the platforms. Yeah, I, I, I respect Mark a ton and have 
have spent time with him. A re- really good guy. I, the, the rules should be reasonably designed and, you know, industry best practices, plus or minus some other standards. If you're looking at the statute and the CFTC's rules, that there's not a de minimis exemption on this U.S. person's accessing um, a derivatives platform and bringing the CFTC into play. That there, there, there really is not. And so if, if you've got one user, a handful of U.S. users, however they show up, there is a potential hook for the CFTC if they've concluded that you're, you're doing something that implicates their jurisdiction, acting as a broker, acting as an exchange. And I, I think historically, the way they pursued enforcement has very much involved a, not a de minimis approach, but are, is there an actual effort to either let U.S. persons on or to not take steps to take them off and to not, not, stake, not take legitimate, credible steps? But it, we, we, should, we should keep in mind that the statutes and the rules don't get you there. Traditional enforcement, regulatory, prosecutorial discretion can get you there, but the statute and the rules don't carve out. You know, If there's only 10 U.S. persons, then you're fine. And I, I guess that's a point to, to keep front of mind. And also a point that we, would, we might ask, is this solving the policy concerns at play? Or instead, should it be recalibrated to a more principles-based policies approach? And I think that's probably consistent with what Mark was describing. And I can imagine it is difficult for some projects where you take certain steps, block USIP, and then US users figure out a way to get around the, the firewalls that you put up to keep them out. They could even travel and be in another country. And there's, especially when it comes to DeFi and there isn't no, isn't a KYC. I mean, how do you think about the of evolution of this rule or just the way geo-blocking works going forward? Do you see this being a big component of the legal side of crypto going forward? Or is this something where you have to block jurisdictions? If you have users, you're subject to the jurisdiction, uh, the rules that apply there. Where, where do you see this falling going forward, Ryan? I think geo-blocking is a valuable tool. And it's, it's, the, it's one of the first tools in the toolbox that if you've decided certain jurisdictions are out of bounds for your project, you need to use it. Uh, to, to, to not do it would be would be a problem. I think the clear call from regulators, both in the U.S. And, and elsewhere, if you're trying to strip out their jurisdiction, you need to take some additional steps. And I, I think we've seen some partnering with vendors who do sort of either on-chain statistics or other, other sorts of surveillance and monitoring to try to identify the characteristics of users from a given jurisdiction. If someone goes to your customer support portal and their phone number is a U.S. phone number, time to flag that as a potential U.S. jurisdiction, uh, U.S. jurisdictional person, or other other prohibited jurisdiction, where, where you've seen some coalescence globally around what what thou shalt do, what what you have to do, is around the sanctions list and sh- sanctions individuals. And in, interestingly, on you know blacklisted wallets, it's it's as easy as here is a list of the blacklisted wallets. Ensure that your 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 protocol or program or project doesn't allow those to interact. And there's been a lot of solutions to implementing that type of block. Now I think the next step is some sort of multi-jurisdictional agreement or coordination on you know, how we do that, not for blacklisted wallets, but identifying any category of wallet that we've decided is not going to be able to engage with this protocol. Let's have some standards, multi-jurisdictional standards for how we start to identify those and how we implement them. And that I think is unfortunately calling for, you know, 
something like IOSCO, and I know they put out their DeFi paper recently. Um, the, SC, the SEC did a lot of work on it. Um, you know, th those types of groups serve a purpose. I think getting them to the right result uh, is going to take giving them some time, but also engaging with them and offering solutions to their policy issues that, that we know lots of people are working to do. And geoblocking to me was always an interesting one because if you take the position that you need to geoblock, let's just say U.S. customers or U.S. users, you're taking that for a particular reason. And it's likely because you're offside of certain rules that would apply to you if you were to offer that service in the U.S. But then if you take that principle that, hey, you're offering, let's just say, some sort of margin or leverage trading. Well, if you block the U.S., there's rules in other jurisdictions that will apply to you. And now you're almost agreeing that those rules apply by blocking the U.S. But if you don't go ahead and block the other jurisdictions, it could almost paint either a target on your back or make it a very difficult conversation to have if there is enforcement action brought. Yeah, I think this is where the facts and circumstances of any given project becomes very important. And I think few projects only... It's, it's rare that the only thing in place is a U.S. geo blocker and no other standards or onboarding programs, et cetera. It, it, it certainly can exist, but um, I think it's – and there's also different analyses in a lot of jurisdictions. You've got, you've got reverse, reverse solicitation as a still somewhat relevant concept for a, lot of, for a lot of the global markets where if users are leaving their jurisdiction and going to something that's arguably set up somewhere else – then they should look to the rules of the jurisdiction where the pro program is being offered rather than the rules of their home country jurisdiction. So there's there's the legal analysis that you almost have to do jurisdiction by jurisdiction and you come to different conclusions for different types of users. And then there's also what else might the project or, or protocol be doing besides US geo blocking. And in every story is unique. Every story is, is different. And that, I mean, frankly, that's why a lot of us are you know, busy during the days is helping think through what those stories look like and, and what's the best structure for the purpose of what you're trying to accomplish. The last thing on, on the point of the CFTC settlements, if curious if there's anything we haven't discussed in terms of the impact of projects in the crypto spaces. Was there anything particularly novel that you gleaned from this? Was there anything like net new to you, Ryan, that you think needs to be implemented for projects moving forward? I think one of one of the settlements was around you know, third parties bringing the what were what were called the swaps or the derivatives to a protocol. The protocol developers um, didn't generate those projects, didn't design them, didn't import them. A third party bring them in, and the developers still get tagged as the the futures commission merchant or the broker, and and I and, and potentially even as the exchange. And so it 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 brings a heightened level of cautiousness. Um, let's say you took a step and said, look, we're not going to deploy any products ourselves through this protocol. The world's going to look at this protocol and do what they will with it um, is, is, is a fact pattern that you might have seen folks get some comfort around earlier that I think now you've got to look at again and continue to analyze. So it, it's not surprising to see the CFTC look at the, the platforms and protocols where there are derivatives like products trading and say those are CFTC jurisdictional platforms. Not a surprise. And I, I think most people have advised that since these projects started developing. Um, little interesting to see at least one commissioner in parallel put out, I think Commissioner Pham put out some ideas around a sandbox of a renewed talk of some sort of incrementalism to this 
regulatory space, that's a helpful step. And I, I think not not an idea that we should ignore. The U.S. hasn't done great with sandboxes. I don't, I don't know if there's really any that have, have had real real shape to them around the digital asset markets. But it, it was interesting to see a renewed call for that idea. I, th- I think that's that's progress. Yeah, and I think the fact that people are thinking through ways to sh- shepherd this technology is, is important. Whether or not things like a sandbox work, still to be determined, right? Just because it hasn't worked in the past doesn't mean it couldn't work in the future. So it'll be interesting to see what the CFTC does there and, and regulators generally. Yeah, and look, the, the pressure from these these settlements is... You know, you are not registered. Your your program is not registered, and we think it should be. You, you're going to see some projects now start to knock on the door of the CFTC and say, "Well, let's register. Let's talk through how to register as an FCM. Let's talk to how to register as a futures exchange." That that's that's a process that takes time. It takes resources. We 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 all understand what that means. But there, maybe there's a willingness to continue those discussions. They won't be the first persons to show up at the CFTC with a DeFi project and say, we'd like to register. But maybe this is part of the push towards what, what many see as an eventuality, some type of registration or acknowledgement by the regulator of these projects, some sort of opt-in by these projects into a regulatory structure. Yeah, and I think the sandbox gives them that low-hanging, the easy step up and way to engage with the regulators in a less confrontational way, while also still being able to create the project Last question I wanted to, to ask you, and it's a two-parter, Ryan. This is one I've always enjoyed hearing the insights of the attorneys, regulators, and entrepreneurs on this show is the is regarding habits and advice. And the first is, are there any habits that have helped you cultivate a successful career? That's a great question. Well, with, the jury might still be out on a successful career, but let's just posit a career to date. And so what, what are we trying to do here? I think reading is important. Reading the newspaper is important from college and then all the way through as you grow and expand um, the, the types of clients you're working with and the types of programs you're, you're, you're helping carry through. Um, you want to understand where the world is around you. And a lot of that comes from reading, whether it's news articles or what regulators are doing or good books, good historical books. Where, where has this been done before and how do they navigate this these types of these types of questions um, in the past. So um, go out there and read as much as you can read. And then I, I think the other piece is mentoring. You want to ensure that you've got a very strong mentoring program around you, whether it's formal or informal. I don't care. You want you want to have folks pouring into you, caring about what your career does and even what your life does. And at the same time, you want to look for folks that you can pour into. You want to mentor up and be mentoring down. And Having that network of people who care about you, your career, your development, your advancement, and you doing that for others helps you helps you build a perspective to enjoy what you're doing, but also to identify your goals and pursue them because you're helping folks do that for themselves. And you've got a structure around you of folks pushing you towards identifying your goals and pursuing them as well. Yeah, it's it's so important to have people around you who not only inspire you, but that you can learn from and also paying that for it. I think in the legal profession, especially, it's such an important thing to do because so much of it is a black box. And unfortunately, law school doesn't do a great job always of preparing people to enter the professional world. And it's hard to really give an idea of what it's like to work in big law while, while you're going to school. Agree. But the, the other thing is, 
I, I do tons of lunches, dinners, coffees, teas, Zoom chats, and you know, I, I it probably structure it half of them I'm receiving, half of them I'm, I'm I'm talking to someone who reached out to me, and they're equally valuable. And you just you can't you to have a network, you have to go and have a network, and it's something that takes work and maintaining of it. And it's 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 not really for commercial success. It's it's a it's a huge ingredient of that. But it's about becoming the type of professional that that you want to be by by plugging into some community and network. Are there any things that you do to um, work best with mentors? Is there any way you approach the mentorship process that you find particularly helpful, or you've changed your thinking on over the years? I through both formal and informal stuff. I I think pushing some sort of cadence with without being too rigid is important. Like saying, look, it's every three months, I'm going to call you whether you like it or not. So that that's an important part of is it's just forcing it to happen. And I think if, if you're the one being mentored, it's really helpful to send the person in advance. And this might seem kind of ridiculous, but five to eight points that you'd like to cover in, in what I'll call a session. Say, here's what I'm thinking about. Here's my goals. Here's how I think I might pursue them. That allows someone who's got experience, perspective, and who knows a little bit about you to really push you on those issues because now they know where you're focused. I really like that idea, and I think it's a good way to think about. It's almost like people who say you shouldn't have an, a meeting a meeting without an agenda, and it gives so much structure. And then the people who are mentoring you can think through those ideas and, and brainstorm on them ahead of time. Now that, that that's fantastic, Ryan. And I wanted to thank you really for. Uh, the time you've taken to speak with me today. I know quite a few people who speak very, very highly of you and the mentorship that you've given them over the years. Where can people get in touch with you to learn more about your new firm and to work with you? Sure. No, I, I think we had a great discussion. Thanks for the invitation. I'm around. Uh, we're open. I'm at Miller Strategic Partners. You can find me at ryan at millerstrategic.co. So my first name, R-Y-N-E at millerstrategic.co. Um, thanks, Jacob. This was really fun. No, my pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks so much and good luck with the new firm. Thanks.